Hey everybody, welcome back to the Table Church Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm here with Pastor Megan Cook, my uh, my peer, my colleague. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, Megan, can we talk about how cool dogs are just to get this thing going? Yeah. We both think dogs are cool. We do really think dogs are cool. And now we have even more proof. And that is this, that dogs are ridiculously good at detecting covid they can. I mean, there is a treasure trove of information to be found about dog olfaction. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. They can smell the COVID on you to like a 90% accuracy, mm-hmm. even if you're asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the question is, how do they tell you? Well, and yeah, the article. If a dog smells COVID on you, does it know COVID exists? So let me correct. Let me correct something. I don't know that they've actually done it where a dog just comes up to a human and smells them, but they've taken samples, Mm -hmm. like snot samples, you know, and like lined them up for the dogs and trained them to like sit down next to the ones that are positive. And they're Mm -hmm. like usually 90 or better percent, 90% or better Mm -hmm. accurate. Um, And like in a whack a mole game for COVID. Yeah. They're really good. Dogs are really good. Yeah. I mean, what so it's how many what percent um it, accuracy well there's a range like and depending on the study it's anywhere from like one study was like oh, man i'm scrolling through the article okay uh dogs could predict positive covid tests with 73 to 93 percent accuracy after a month of training mm-hmm. but in a uk study dogs accurately pinpointed 82 to 94 percent of positive cases um, and it goes on to talk about how they were over 90% accuracy, accurate in detecting negative cases as well. 91%, I wow. believe it said. Uh, and then they're also roughly the same, if not better, at detecting asymptomatic cases. I bet that was lots of good boys and girls that got lots oh, of treats. Man. I That's bet they got so many treats. Such a good boy. Oh, my goodness. Did you know <laughs> that dogs can smell cancer? I didn't know that. But, I mean, yeah. I'm not surprised at this point. So dogs trained to detect cancer have an accuracy rate between 88 and 97 percent versus machines, which is between 85 and 90 percent, simply by sniffing the breath, urine or blood sample of an individual. (laughs) Can you believe that? Cancer. I don't understand why we're not utilizing this more. I know. Why are there not COVID dog stations? Why are we just using all these dogs for like mental health, (laughs) self-care? Why am I just reading about this? How <laughs> come I've never been tested? epilepsy, which we know because a lot of people will yeah. have like a companion dog they have mm-hmm. with them that they can tell that an attack is coming on. Right. Um, they can detect when you're ovulating. I think I knew Unbelievable. that. Unbelievable. I think I knew Unbelievable. that. Unbelievable. Not sure how I knew, but I did. I mean, everybody kind of understands that dogs, many dogs have like a good sense of emotions. Mm-hmm. Like they can sense, you know when your emotions change or when you have like subtle changes in your emotions that you're not willing to face in your brain right now, but your dog can tell that your body is reacting to something, right? you know, um, they'll come and put a paw on you and be Mm -hmm. like, do you need a break or a (laughs) snack or a nap? Are dogs like, cause I'm always up for a break or a snack. Are dogs more emotionally (laughs) mature than us? I think a case could be made that they're more emotionally mature. I mean, the fact that they live in the moment and they can't think about the past or the future, they can only be right now. That's a sign of emotional maturity, right? Yeah. 
being I mean, in that, the present. It helps. I don't know if they're more <laughs> mature, but they are more able to just be in the moment and not be thinking about yesterday. They're over. They're able to overcome adversity with a good attitude. Mm-hmm. Better than they're people. Just present. <laughs> dogs. There's no gift like the present. Dogs are. They're a sacrament. I don't know. That might I have love been, that you've, really, been too you've far. really switched your tune that on dogs once you got one. I know. I did. You used to. I always used to be able to detect a little bit of snide, snarky, you know. I don't think it's snide or snarky. I mean, when I, I would talk about my dogs and how much I favor them mm-hmm. over many other things, I could tell that you were like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and now I think you understand. Um. Yeah. I mean. I'm like going to the pet store. I love going to the pet store. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Pet store is fun. Exactly. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess I can understand. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I have, I have not necessarily had a change of heart. I've gone farther down the road that I was already on. There you go. All right. I've always liked dogs, grew up with dogs, but didn't have a dog. Didn't really want a dog for a long time. My kids got a little older. I thought, I think my kids would love a dog. Turns mm-hmm. out the dog's for me. Like, I don't even yeah. know how much my kids really like Theo. Your kids could take it or leave it a lot of the time, yeah. I think. But the Theo and I are tight. Because you went ahead and got a dog that's like a lot. He's a, he's a handful. <laughs> but to everyone else. To me, he's he's less of a handful. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. He's my dog. He's also a puppy. Yeah. He turns one on November 11th, which is the same day that Zorn Kierkegaard died. Wow. He dropped dead in the street at like 41 years of age. Did he have a heart attack? Or brain I'm not sure if we really know what happened. Okay. But I should look that up. <laughs> but we should do a Kierkegaard episode sometime because I've been in the deep yeah, hole. I deep. saw that you've been reading it, some more. It's a rabbit hole that I'm in and I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. We'll do one. I'm currently reading Bono's biography. Mm. It just came out on Tuesday. That's cool. It's very good. I bet. We mm-hmm. should talk real quick to our listeners about the fact that we want to hear from you. That's true. We're doing what we call a hard transition right yeah. now. And it, the reason I just did that hard transition <laughs> is because I want to get this as early in the episode as possible. That's true. And uh, I know I'll forget about it if I keep going and don't I actually it. already forgot about it until you said that just now. Right. It just popped in my head. We I was, talked about dogs. I was on dogs and I forgot. So we have a survey that we would love for you all to click on. Uh, if Where are you listening to this podcast right now? Are you driving? Well, pull over for a second. Yeah. Just, could you just stop the car? Just pull over. Are you doing dishes? Well, take a break. Click on the survey in the show notes. Here's why. Number one, Number one. this feels like a, I don't like feeling like I'm just talking into the abyss, you know? I know that you're out there, oh listener. We see the stats. You're there. But we don't know you, and we want to know you. And so would you mind clicking on that link, giving us a little bit of feedback, and, and, and tell us what you want from the podcast. How can we make this better for you? Because this is why we're doing it. We're doing it for you. Mm-hmm. It's true. Phil and I can talk to each other anytime we want. It's true. It's true. So if you go to the show notes at the very top of all the links, there's a listener survey. You click it. It should take you about a minute to complete it. Um, you just open it up, throw in your name and your email. We promise we will never send your email anywhere else. We won't share it with anyone. We won't use it for nefarious ends. No, and we will not start sending you emails if you give us your email address. It's just simply because if you want to fill out the form, there has to be an email attached. Yeah. So go ahead, fill out the top, fill out the questions beneath it, 
and let us know where you're listening from, why you're here, uh, the stuff that you appreciate the most about the podcast and the things that you hope we talk about in the future. And um, you have a shot at uh, telling us how we can improve. Yeah. So we need you. We would really love to hear from you. Also, just straight up out of curiosity, we would love to get to say hi. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I also want to let you all know, I hear this. There's a slight crackle in our audio that I'm hearing in my headphones. I don't know if it's my headphones or if it's something in the actual audio. So if you don't hear it, wonderful. It sounds like when my preaching mic is rubbing against my beard. Yeah. It's not horrible. And so I think we can live with it. And at this point, I'm not going to stop the podcast. But Is it still happening? I'm not hearing it anymore. Okay. I moved some things around on the desk. Okay. Brilliant. I think there might have been a butterfly effect (laughs) of this cord touching my laptop, which was touching those papers behind my laptop. And I think that might have been doing it. Science is weird. I hear it. I still hear it a little bit. Okay, fine. I'm hoping it's just my my, uh, headphones are shorting or something. They are old. They're the old kind of um, Apple ear pods that have like the... Earbuds. Yeah regular old plug-in we'll make it we'll survive it's not very bad as it is anyway so now it sounds good okay Okay. (laughs) well okay so number one if you have a dog give them a treat for us (laughs) it's a good boy number two would you please go to the show notes and fill out the listener survey for us just because um we we are here for you this is Mm -hmm. all for you so we would love to get to hear how we can make this even better for you number three what are we gonna talk about today well, we're going to do a few more chapters of the book Renovated by Jim Wilder slash Dallas Willard. Uh, can I just tell you, I'm thoroughly enjoying this book. Mm-hmm. I've been reading it as we go. Mm-hmm. You'd read it prior. I had not read I it prior. It. And so I'm reading it as we go. Like I, I read the last, I read chapter seven this morning. Um, I, oh man, like this is where we need to be right now in conversations about spiritual formation, discipleship and evangelism in the church. Like the stuff in this book is what we need to be talking about more. And I don't know why we're not talking about it more. Like the neurological mm-hmm. basis of transformation and change. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about this a bit today. But one thing that we talk about today is the reason we need to talk about this more is because people in the church, for the most part, and this is the church's fault as much as anyone else, we follow like society's accepted way of thinking about change and transformation as if that maps on perfectly to the Mm -hmm. Christian life and that all you have to do is apply what society says makes you into a good person in order to be a good Jesus follower when it's really not, that's not the core of what it is. So if I were to, if I were to put that in my words, what I would say is like the, the rationalist modernistic post alignment project has, has uh, postulated that, we change through information. We change through knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Wilder would say that's what he calls the slow track of the brain, like cognitive thought. Like mm-hmm. I think the right things, then I will become the right thing. I think, therefore, I am. Exactly. It's, mm-hmm. Dick, it's Cartesian from Rene Descartes. And uh, he would say, no, actually, we realize now that that's not really how the brain works. There's a slow track. That's the cognitive thought. But there's also what he calls a fast track. And this is this is like in primarily in the right side of the brain. And it's it's moving like the circuit runs like six times a second or something. Mm-hmm. And so your your right hemisphere, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. This fast track is um like doing stuff before you're even aware of it. Mm-hmm. 
and it's in that fast track where we form relationships and attachments and mm-hmm. feelings and emotional maturity. It's like our snap judgments about things are formed in that mm-hmm. fast track. And you can kind of look at it a really simple way that I think everybody relates to is if you have a teacher who's extremely passionate about their subject matter and about their students, like a teacher who loves what they're teaching and loves their students. And you can tell like you, you learn without even really having to try. And you probably still remember the names of the teachers or the things that they taught you in like third grade, because there's something different than just having good information or interesting content. When you have a teacher who embodies what they're teaching and you can tell they actually care about you Mm -hmm. and deeply want to share this with you because it will benefit you in some way that triggers all those things on the right side of your brain where you're attaching to the teacher it's easier to attach to the content and remember it because they care and they care about you and so your brain has an easier time receiving it yeah so and the key word you just said is the word attachment Mm -hmm. which is a technical term in the psychological world having to do with our ability to form a relationship of trust with a caregiver. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when a baby cries and someone comes and consoles it or feeds it or whatever, that happens hundreds if not thousands of times in the early years of life. And through that, this baby, this child will form the ability to trust and to love and to rest kind of in the, in the relationship with the caregiver. That's a, that's attachment. And so Jim Wilder's thesis is essentially that we need to start viewing salvation as a process of attaching to God. Um, and you know, it's, that, that's not necessarily, um, earth shaking. I think for Megan and I, like we've, we've thought and talked this way a lot because, well, through some prayer experiences we've had and also through the fact that we've adopted kids, mm-hmm. like attachments, no, not a foreign concept, but the more you learn about it. And he even does a lot of deep biblical work to kind of demonstrate that perhaps this is what the Bible is trying to get at. Like this is maybe what's in the mind of God when he's talking about Hesed love, mm-hmm. loving kindness. That's the Hebrew word for uh, often translated loving kindness. Maybe what behind all that is like this idea of attachment. God actually wired us to attach to him, mm-hmm. to see him in a, you know, to actually be able to implicitly trust him. And so anyway, it's just a fascinating conversation for me. But uh, the question that, the, that Dallas Willard would always ask is, can you spontaneously love your enemies? Like that's like your measuring stick for, for spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, you're never going to do that by simply accessing the slow track of your brain, by just thinking really hard. Jesus died for me. Therefore I should love my enemies. Jesus Mm -hmm. died for me. Therefore I should love my, you know, like not bad to dwell on those things, but that's not the fast track to becoming a person Mm -hmm. who feels the same way. Cause that's trying to access willpower. Mm -hmm. And what we learned is that our will is very weak. Like our will is not a very strong faculty in us. And so instead we need to, think about attachment like if i want to become a person that spontaneously loves my enemies well first i need to attach to a god of love who shows me how to do it who Mm -hmm. models it as i become like as my identity in him grows and my identity with other christians grows i will naturally become the kind of person that that god is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so trying to find a good quote here okay so chapter five is all about neuroscience and developing character Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we've already touched on a lot of those things. Um, and what you're talking about right here, um, that, uh, here's a quote. Um, 
this is a conversation that Dallas Willard and Jim Wilder had had over and over again. Um, so recall our essential idea. You don't become spiritually or emotionally mature by willpower. And then Dallas added, we must emphasize that the process of growth into emotional and spiritual maturity requires that we learn to use our will. And yet our willpower is not the key to spiritual maturity. If we make it the key, we will wind up hopelessly bound in legalism. So what you're talking about right there, like you can't just will yourself mm-hmm. as in like thinking ideas about God. If you attempt to try to just modify all of your behavior to try to mold yourself into a person who's acting like what you think Christian principles are supposed to be, you can maybe be thinking about these things more, but they don't make you into that kind of person. But what they do is transform you into a very religious legalist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the idea that um, not only does it not take you on the fast track to changing into a person who does love your enemies, it makes you almost into a worse person than you were before in a lot of ways. You know, because you can become blind to the fact that you still don't love your enemies, but you, but you know all the right answers. Believe you're in the right place. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. mm, that is dangerous. Like it has like a superpower to almost not only not get you on the fast track, but almost make you in a you know worse off than you were before because mm-hmm. you think you're more right, and you're blind to the fact that you're just as wrong, or sometimes you have an even harder time loving your enemies when yeah. you think you have the right answers and they don't. Yeah. So. And so this, he said, they say the classical model does not match the way the brain works. In other words, the slow track model of like cognitive thought, trying to, you know, bootstrap ourselves into change. That doesn't work according to the brain. Uh, the brain has attachment love, not our will as its central feature. In other words, the brain is transformed through attachment love. That's what sets the conditions in your brain for you to for you to mm-hmm. for you to change and to mature. And this is the part where this book is really useful because it builds on things that Dallas Willard was teaching for decades. Right. And so there's a lot of things that you'll hear Dallas Willard say even in this book where Jim Wilder then builds on it and says, like Dallas said, at the time we didn't really have a well-formed um, uh, soteriology of attachment. Like how does attachment actually become like the conduit through which we are saved like not just through which we come not just going to heaven but you're actually like fully becoming a whole person Mm. and so that's like the key difference why this book matters so much because he takes what dallas willard would say about you need the will not willpower like you need to will yourself toward the will of god and jim wilder would say what we need is attachment at the center that's Mm -hmm. the thing that does it like that's the that's the difference not willpower but attachment and then out of the attachment comes the will, the ability mm-hmm. to change. So attaching to Jesus, he says, means that he becomes the one who feeds us and gives us drink. He's the one that we look to to have our needs met and uh, to be emotionally comforted in these things. So the the big question is like, okay, well, how do we do that? You can't you can't just decide, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to attach to Jesus today, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually give some exercises that at the end of the chapters. And I think this is useful because people, like if you hear us saying reading your Bible isn't enough, knowing the right theology isn't enough, knowing what you're supposed to do with your choices isn't enough, you've got to attach to Jesus. You attach to Jesus and then out of that attachment, when you're reading the Bible, 
you are open in position to receive something from God that you can't plan on. Mm -hmm. And that's where you start to learn he feeds you. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's not that you just read and read and read and hope that you get something, <laughs> Yeah, you know, but up out of the attachment, when you're doing the, the biblical practices, the stuff that you often see in spiritual formation, when you do that stuff, once you're attached to Jesus, um, it not only builds a stronger attachment, but it, it does what you're hoping those things will do in the first place. So like you're in a position to be loving your neighbor by shoveling their sidewalk, but then there can be this mystical extra thing that can happen because you're, you're doing this up out of an attachment to Jesus and you want to get closer to him. And then while you're doing these things, you have conversations with him, mm -hmm. you know, you, uh, have moments where you you have like an honest like connection to God or you feel yourself honestly loving your neighbor and then when those things happen it just builds a stronger attachment between you and other people and actually changes you it's like doing something with your best friend versus doing something with your iPhone mm -hmm. like we treat God as an iPhone like just give me the information or the stuff that I want right now um, versus a friend you know and so who can surprise you, interrupt you, mm -hmm. um, you know, say something you hadn't thought of. Yep. <laughs> so he has these exercises, these kind of prayer exercises at the end of the chapters. And, you know, for example, one uh, from the end of chapter seven, I think it is, is like spend just three minutes thinking about um, a time where you really felt God's presence and, mm -hmm. and like give it a word, describe it, try to make it tangible. What was God's presence like? And then think of a time that was really difficult where you didn't feel God's presence, but you know he was there. And start to realize that he was there. Spend three minutes on that and give a word to that feeling as you start to realize that, oh, God was there. Mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, and these sorts of exercises just start to form our muscles for being attuned to the fact that God is there with us, even the hard things, and can help us start to attach. Like, you know, what an infant, literally, like what an infant does uh, with their mother or father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... And there's like, there's a, at the end of every chapter, he gives something practical that you can do to try these things out. Um, like what Dallas Willard would always say, it's not just believing things about God, it's putting what God says into practice. And so if you put those things into practice, he has these really simple, um, like at the end of chapter five, he has one called a nine minute meal. And it says, do this exercise during a meal you share with someone. So imagine you're sitting across from somebody this exercise is three parts and each one is three minutes long so think of doing each one of these each taking three minutes begin by thanking god for feeding you which we do all the time right mm -hmm. um so you're acknowledging acknowledging that god is feeding you since we attach to the one who feeds us thank god for everything you taste and like on your plate this would be funny to do with kids it would be <clears throat> However, thank God by mentioning what you like about the food. It's just a way to like, and this seems so silly, but if you think it does, if you actually try it, you suddenly start to feel a bit vulnerable and a little weird because you're doing something real with God. Mm. Uh, often when we like bless our meal, we're still in control. Yeah. We're like, look, we're going to honor the fact that God gave us his food and we're going to do this and we're going to say our words and then we're going to eat. And we feel like we've checked something off a box. If you do an exercise like this, you feel all like, Ugh. Like, yeah. This is kind of strange because you're actually getting intimate with God right. and in the presence of another person. You're treating God like a real person who's really there. Yeah. That's what's happening. And like he, like he cares about these details. So thank God 
for those who prepared or brought the food to you. This exercise is even better if you arrive quite hungry. Number two, tell a short story of a moment you might have sensed God's smile. So you're just like eating a meal with someone and you're like, think of a time. And all of this feels like a bunch of like woo-woo ridiculousness, but that that's our defensive mechanisms kicking into gear. What it really is is just vulnerable. Yeah, you know, there, there's science to it, you know, like <laughs> sensing the smile. And he goes through this whole thing about how like our English translations of the Bible don't do a lot of service to this. But a lot of times in the Old Testament, especially when uh, somebody's like in the presence of God, it's like actually literally in the Hebrew before the face of God. Like the, we are hardwired to be transformed just by the image of a face smiling. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that God is smiling at you mm-hmm. is like scientifically connected to transformation and people would feel maybe a bit defensive about like telling a story about a time that you sensed god's smile just feels vulnerable it feels a little like how could you know or whatever and Mm -hmm. that just shows the scarcity of our bond yeah (laughs) sometimes but number three i like a lot it says smile at each person sharing the meal with you and bless them with one thing that comes to your mind that god likes about them this is like the most (laughs) wishy-washy vulnerable meal yeah But if you think about it, if you're willing to feel uncomfortable, if you're willing to feel a little silly, you can leave a meal having experienced something with God and with other people that you probably won't forget. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it forms attachment with you and with the people that you're sharing the meal Mm -hmm. with. Always better if other people are involved. It starts to form what he calls a group identity. And that's another, that's one of the other keys along with attachment as far as how we're transformed. It's when we forge a group identity and you can understand this is how my people behave. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody wrongs me, um, if you have a strong group identity that your group says, we love people that hurt us, then your initial reaction is going to more likely be, uh, how can I bring that person into my sphere of joy, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of, instead of trying to get back at them or whatever. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm going to do this with my kids tonight. I'm going to smile at them and I'm going to yeah. be like, hey, here's something that, let's all share something that comes to our mind about that God likes about one another. Because mm-hmm. boy, I want my kids to attach to Jesus. It's you know? one of the reasons why like when we put our discipleship pathway together, it's two people sitting together, mm-hmm. you know, um, figuratively throughout the week getting, you know, poloing each other back and forth and stuff like that. And then once a week getting together at a table. But it's... It turns a lot of people off because it's so vulnerable and so direct and it's just you, you're you trapped, mm-hmm. you know, with this yeah. other person. You are. And it's like, oh, you we cannot hide. Yeah, you cannot hide. You know, yeah, you have to go through all the content. You can't just skip a week. Like mm-hmm. you got to show up or it's not happening. Um, but the people who stick it out are just changed forever by yeah. going through it. And... um this is why, you know, there's a difference between getting things done and then really having something done to you that you don't get to control. And we are very used to keeping ourselves in control, especially when it comes to God. We like to know when we're, we like to know when we're like, you know, putting ourselves in the room for the God stuff and when we're on our own. Like we do like to know that we don't like the idea of God doing things to us that we didn't, you know, sign ourselves up for. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody wants that. We want to be the subject yeah. and God to be the object <laughs> that we act upon rather than the other way around. Um, so let me just ask you a question, listeners. Uh, how is your joy level? If you were to say, like, say you had a some sort of a meter, you got a dashboard. Uh, where's your joy right now? Is it half full, 
you run it on E. So Jim Wilder would say that joy is the fuel that, that leads to transformation and joy comes through attachment. Like we learn joy through attaching to others because that's how we gain trust and security in life, which gives us the space to experience joy. And the thing that, that I've noticed as I'm reading this is I've thought about how, number one, how little joy there seems to be in the church, but number two, how, um, how distant we are from each other, how easy it is for us to simply, I don't know, like not go, like not show up to, oh, I'm just going to watch online today or, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just going to catch up next week on the podcast. You know, Mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're robbing yourself of an opportunity to further attach to the people that love you, to see faces, to see smiles, to, to exercise those attachment muscles, which is the only way you can experience joy in life. Mm -hmm. A person isolated by themselves. This is, this is how we torture people. We put them in isolation, you know, like you have to be with people in order to thrive. And this is like a beautiful picture of the church is never going to force you to do anything. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a part of a church, it's probably not the kind of church that's forcing you into doing things. Right. And so it's the easiest thing to say no to because you feel like you have to do your job and you feel like you've got to do all these other things. And you paid for the soccer, so you have to take your yeah. kids to that. So you have like this, you know, this sunk cost bias. Mm-hmm. Church is this thing that's just sitting there available to you and it feels so costly. And so we want to like keep it at a distance and say, I can... um watch this online. But then that's very cheap because you're not running into people who need you as much as you need them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not, you're not exposing yourself to the variables that naturally come from actually living out, you know, the life that God intends for us right. <laughs> in scripture. And so you're in control mm-hmm. and you generally are not going to feel more restored after stepping away from community um, because the very things you need in order to be revived come from community. Yeah. So the thing that you probably don't want to deal with is the thing you probably need. Mm-hmm. It's true. I've been trying to smile more at church. I want to be a church that smiles since I've been reading this book. I'm like, I, I need to smile more, you know? And so every time someone comes up the stairs at table church, I try to say their name and smile at them because mm-hmm. I want them to know that this is a place where they can, that they can trust and feel safe and know that they belong. And everybody needs that space. And I, I think about people in my life who just naturally smile a lot and how much I just like to be around those people. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if we, have we said this on the podcast? Like maybe we said it a few weeks ago. I don't remember. I think about Kelly Andrews. Mm-hmm. She's our friend, goes to table church. There's always a smile on her face mm-hmm. and, and people like to be around Kelly. And it's no surprise because she makes you feel good because mm-hmm. she's simply by smiling at you, you know, uh, that's what the church ought to be like. And that's what our relationship with God needs to be defined as like mm-hmm. sitting before the smile of God because he loves you. He takes particular mm-hmm. delight in you. We have the most, I have the most, uh, hilarious illustration of this this week. So, um, many of you listening probably don't live in Des Moines. Um, <clears throat> but we have this thing in Des Moines called beggars night. Mm-hmm. And so, um, rather than have kids trick or treat on Halloween, I don't know. Did this come out of like satanic panic or was this earlier than that? <laughs> it has to, Is I don't like know. 60s, 70s or 80s? We should, we should do a re- I don't know where it comes Next from. Next year, Halloween, we're doing a beggar's night episode. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. So we have this thing called beggar's night on the 30th and the times are very clear. It's between six and eight is beggar's night, you know, um, and then it'll depend on like your different communities. So it's the full metro area participates in this. 
And so rather than go on Halloween, kids go on beggar's night. And um, that's the day before Halloween. Yes. Or some some towns have it actually like two days before, you know. Um, But anyway, not on Halloween. So kids trick or treat. But rather than like say trick or treat, the kids in the Des Moines Metro are trained to say, I've got a joke. So the whole thing is rather than trick or treating, you go door to door, you give a joke Mm-hmm. And then you get treats. And so um, I think you're maybe Googling this right I now. Am. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's what Beggar's Night is in Des Moines. So uh, I have learned from being new here that this is a unique thing that Des Moines does. And I don't know if anyone does it anywhere else. So check this out. <laughs> Beggar's Night is, is practiced in <laughs> Buffalo, New York, Des Moines, Iowa, Columbus, Ohio, Washington, D.C., Vermont, Seabrook, New Hampshire, and Houston, Texas. Okay. So people in Des Moines are just lying to me when they tell me that it's a unique thing. Do you, do you see what the I mean, origin is? Um, it, I don't see it. I mean, the basic goal is that kids are not out oh, trick-or-treating the same night that people here, are out cavorting. Beggars Night emerged to address security concerns over young children involved in unsupervised trick-or-treating. Sure. Instead, younger children were encouraged to trick-or-treat on another night before Halloween. It doesn't tell me when it began, but... Okay. It just feels like oh. something. In Vermont, parts of the 1970s, Vermont, Vermont, Beggar's Night was a night for playing tricks. Sure. Trick or treat came on Halloween. So there's a different different understanding of yeah. Beggar's Night. In okay. Des Moines, it's the cute the teddy point. bear costume. <laughs> you know, you go out, you get your candy. There's no like teenagers out smashing yeah. pumpkins. Let's get like back that. to discipleship. So we have Beggar's Night on the 30th which is so much fun. And then on the 31st, we get like two Halloweens, basically. Um, (laughs) So then on the 31st, Des Moines has this event called Halloween on the Hill. And the hill is Sherman Hill, which is our neighborhood where the ministry center is. Mm -hmm. And um, I just got to attend it for the first time this year because we've been here for three years. I missed it the first year in 2019. And then um, for the two years after that, it was COVID and they didn't have the event. So I believe the Des Moines Arts Council sponsors it it's a huge event so they block up the streets in our neighborhood um so our street was blocked there's no parking on the street they block up the streets and as many houses as are willing um are encouraged to just deck out their house and what it becomes is they turn out like all the street lights are out mm. and um it is the best way to describe it is it it's like a walking tour uh, where the houses are like you don't you don't ever know what you're going to expect. It's sort of like walking through a haunted house, but it's our a entire neighborhood. neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it's like a haunted house tour yeah. through our neighborhood, and then there will be like there's like full to the nines costumed like people out on the street like tricking you and doing things like that. But you sign up for it, right? Okay. So it's all free. Um, there was like live action thriller like um, flash mob stuff on the, yeah mm-hmm. like uh, every half hour um there's all these different houses that do these performances it's just insane the best way that i can describe it which is i believe what i told you is, is um as a first timer you walk around and your our neighborhood is transformed into like the neighborhood in hocus pocus <laughs> Which I don't have any <laughs> recollection of. But. Or like any Halloween movie you've ever seen where like the whole town is just like 
out and in mm-hmm. costume and just having like a wild crazy time mm-hmm. it's like that cool. but the best way to describe it is like the neighborhood in hocus pocus everywhere you go there's just um so they expected this year i believe five thousand people to come to just our neighborhood and i think that was probably either met or exceeded wow. like it was just packed and it was so much fun everybody is so excited to be there um but here's the deal you're walking through and it's truly like there's plenty of families there with their kids, but they're kids who like can handle it, you know, because okay. it's like it's not not scary. Right. You know, there's like Chucky dolls bicycling okay. down the street, things like yeah. that. But it's also good fun. Like mm-hmm. there's plenty of kids there. It's a family event. Um, <laughs> family ish. Yeah. <laughs> but our street is blocked off. We had our ministry center all lit up because we had another uh, event happening here at the same time. And um, so what would happen is people, there's thousands of people walking by our building and I stood outside. Um, side note, we had done an, a, an Encanto themed trick or treat or trunk or treat at mm-hmm. Edmonds Elementary that evening as well. And so, so you were in your Louisa I was still in, stuff. I was uh, dressed as Louisa. Did uh, you have your little donkey? I didn't have my donkey oh. anymore, but plenty of people did say, are you Louisa from Encanto? That's so, um, you and Mara, you guys nailed we it. We did. You nailed <laughs> Mara it. Mara nailed it times a thousand. Um, Mara dressed as Mirabelle. But anyway, I'm still in costume, but I have all of our leftover candy. So I went outside to go hand it out. And um, people would walk by and they've been like, you know, weaving through like, you know, maybe a dozen blocks of just like outside haunted house they get to our building and i've got this bag of candy and i'm standing there like in the middle of the street with this light up bag of candy in the dark saying do you want some candy Mm -hmm. and over and over again hundreds of people after everything that they've been through they're afraid to come up to me because they assume that i have like it's a, a severed trick. head it's or a, trick, a, can, not a treat. yeah like a, a hand or something in this bag like they're afraid to look in the bag and like no seriously and so i'd have to like hold the bag open and let them see like there's just candy in here mm-hmm. so they'd be afraid of me and then they'd be like oh my gosh okay and then <laughs> the reaction of like they're <laughs> they signed up for this and it's all good fun but there's like that fear and hesitation all the way through all these houses and they get to our building and they're like suspect about Mm -hmm. what i might like what my motivations are when they realize it's just candy like all of their guards go down yeah and they're grabbing all this candy and this is like adults Mm. you know (laughs) they're grabbing all this candy and they their guard immediately just like completely melts they take the candy we have a conversation and it's super fun and it's just this perfect illustration of like when you go through life with fear (laughs) yep and then you experience someone who's honestly just there to love you. It's disarming, you know, and and then I'm giving them candy, which who doesn't like candy? And it was the good stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like good chocolate. Good. And um, and then like the instant bond we had because they had just been through this whole journey. And then I'm just there. You're like, like a little to bless them. A little pinprick of light. Yes. <laughs> in a very dark world. And our whole building was lit up. Yeah. And so what was funny is we had thousands of people walking by the building. All of them are de- like they're deliberately looking in the building because they assume that there's like gonna be a setup of like an operating room or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> like all nasty yeah. inside the building, like, you know, that you're supposed to look in and see. And they're like, Oh no, there's just a bunch of people in there. Yeah. 
like so, meeting. So the, the challenge for us next year is to figure out how to like just bless the socks off of people. Yes. Like get them in our building and give them something awesome. Yeah. You know? So we're playing. We're I'm, we're, we're going to talk about plans for next year for sure. We are definitely doing something. But it's just so funny because people are like, you got a head in that bag. Like, <laughs> what are you trying to do to me? And they find out it's just candy. People, I total strangers. We were just like instant friends. <laughs> All that to say, how did we get here? Well, all that to say, we, when you go throughout your life, especially your life in the church or related to the church, with a lot of cynicism or distrust, mm-hmm. or you want to keep your distance, um, it prevents you from sometimes seeing the honest goodness that's like right in front of you mm. because you want to hold it at arm's length. If you submit yourself more often to not being in control and just diving into community. Mm-hmm. Um, you can experience surprises like that where you go, Oh, this person really is here just to love me. Like they Mm -hmm. don't have an agenda beyond that. And I can become a person who's here just to love them. Yeah. So yeah. But anyway, that it took you a while to land that plane, but you landed it really well. (laughs) Like that, that came together. I'm not joking. That came (sighs) together. That feels like like a backhanded compliment. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, there's a lot of setup because I have to explain there's yeah. this insane event, but people are just like, you know, they'd been walking and walking and walking through darkness mm-hmm. and then there I am. And it's like, oh. no, I'm telling you, it all came together just now. <laughs> like it, I, my mind's a little bit blown. It was really good. It was really good. Uh, but yeah, for next year, it's like, how can we, when we were thousands of people coming to our building mm-hmm. and there, <laughs> what was funny is how people were deliberately looking inside, looking for something scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it was just like a really nice building and they're like, what's in there? And people were so curious about the building and yeah. the space that we have and things like that. Let's so, bless them. Let's bless them. And I was like, uh, not, not only is this not scary, but I have Snickers. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Oh man. What, what else do we want to, do we want to mention? Well, I'll, I mean, there's so many things I have highlighted, but I've highlighted it's all very lots. good. But I think, um, honestly, just read the book. I couldn't do it read better it. than they do. Read it. He, they spent a lot of time in chapter seven um, working with some biblical oh, words. Oh, I remember what I wanted to say. I remember what I wanted to say. Okay. Okay. Um, so in chapter seven, one thing we didn't mention that I think is really important, and we've probably talked about this before, but I think it is worth mentioning here, the difference between Christians and disciples mm-hmm. and that you can be a Christian and not necessarily be a disciple. Right. <laughs> yes. That's so weird for people. Yeah, and that really rubs a lot of people the mm-hmm. wrong way, but I say it all the time, and people are like, Whoa! because there's a difference. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, can we cover that quick? Sure. The okay. question is, should there be a difference? No. In common parlance, there is a difference. Yeah. But there probably shouldn't be. The ideal is that you are both. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if you don't understand that they're not the same thing, it's going to be harder and harder for you to arrive at the point that you are a disciple with intentionality. So, would, okay. Would you say that biblically speaking, you can be a Christian, but not a disciple? Or would you say like Americanly speaking, <laughs> you can be a Christian and not a disciple? I think there's an argument to say that biblically what Jesus is presenting is in one moment, you look at me and you say, mm-hmm. I will be your rabbi. You're going to follow me. I am your master. You are my student. Mm -hmm. And it's all implied in that. But I think there's certainly biblical evidence that people have a journey to take between knowing that Jesus is the Messiah Mm -hmm. and actually treating him as their master. Right. 
Yeah, and I think um, you know, a disciple in the Bible would be like somebody who like literally follows you around, you know. And obviously not everybody well, particularly, you know, in Acts or in Paul's letters, like Jesus had ascended, they weren't following Jesus around. And so the literal definition of, dis- of a disciple uh, had to be expanded a bit, mm-hmm. presumably. Because a disciple could be any student with a master. Mm-hmm. They understood that to be like, yeah, lay your own life down to go follow this other person and become as much like them as possible Yeah, in Judaism. But also it was just like an understanding of like a teacher and a student mm-hmm. or a master, better word. And a student following them. Christian discipleship was following Jesus right. because he's the Messiah. Yeah. And your master. Okay. So what does it mean to be a Christian, but not a disciple? What, if, like if somebody thinks that that's possible or if somebody, I don't know. Yeah. Explain that to me. So here's a good quote from chapter seven. It says, Christians have beliefs about God, but are mostly unchanged by their faith. Disciples have lives with God and become increasingly mature. So someone can be a Christian. You can be saved. You can know who God is and understand from that who you are. But it doesn't mean that you're deliberately following God by living life with God and as mm-hmm. much as possible learning from him how to live your life like he would live it if he were you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so it- you can be saved, but that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're deliberately interacting with God mm-hmm. all day long and taking lead from him about how to live the minutia of your everyday life. Yeah. And I would want to, I would want to tweak it by saying you can be on the front porch of salvation, but not enter the house. And you do have to be saved first before you can be a disciple in the way of Jesus that mm-hmm. we're talking about. So they're necessarily together. <laughs> for, like, Cause for me, salva- I'm trying to get in the word salvation away from this idea of it, like an instantaneous choice that now, you know, boom, you're saved. Like salvation is a process of being conformed to the likeness of Christ mm-hmm. entering and living in his kingdom and these sorts of things. I don't want to just make like salvation be this one thing. Like usually what we think of salvation, that's actually step one you know, of salvation. Like you decided to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Great. That's step one of a million or of infinity. And we um, Wesleyans would say it's not the first step. Like that God is actually because drawing God you. is doing it first. God, yeah. God is drawing yeah. you prior to you ever even being conscious of him. But this, like the idea of like the, the Methodist Wesleyan way of understanding salvation also maps onto this concept of attachment <laughs> salvation. Yeah very well because God is the one who comes first. He gives you what you need. You can respond to it. You can attach to him. That first attachment is just to simply like reach out your hand and grab it. Mm -hmm. But then you grow an attachment over time as your life is overtaken by his life and living with him eventually becomes you into this person that is holy and whole and um, continues to grow even after you die. We call it sanctification. Yes. <laughs> we Wesleyans like that word. Um, it's a good word. What was I going to say about all this? But the whole point is I I loved what Dallas Willard would always say about this when he'd get asked at conferences and things like um, the difference between simply being a Christian and being a deliberate disciple and the fact that you can, one person who um, in one moment would say, yeah, I am a disciple. The next day you might catch yourself in a moment where you are not being a disciple. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as if you arrive at, I've, I've gotten to like the platinum level. Like I'm not just a Christian. I'm a disciple. Um, being a disciple is a state that can change being a Christian 
arguably we're not going to get into that here is a state that doesn't change like once you're saved you're saved okay for the most part right we'll put a pin in that one i guess put a pin in that <laughs> one that's the thing that you you don't like what do we wesleyans say you don't lose your salvation like you lose your keys yeah like <laughs> being saved is this thing that happens to you that um, is not in all of your control and all of that, but you can control whether or not you're deliberately being a disciple. Sure. That is something that you're deliberately choosing. Mm. Um, so, uh, of those two states, like Dallas would always say, like, you know, I think it even says in this book, you can ask yourself, am I, am I, am I being a disciple? Mm -hmm. There's, um, questions that you can ask, like, uh, uh, have I, like, when's the last time I talked to God today? Sure. Like listened for him to respond. Or talk to him, period. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so not just talking at him, but can I name the last conversation I had with God and the substance of it? it was it in the last few hours or have I not thought of him at all today? Mm -hmm. um, I think that maybe one of the most tangible examples of that in the book is when the, when they talk about mutual mind states mm -hmm. so mutual mind is when we kind of non-verbally share a thought process with someone and this is something that happens in the fast track part of our brain where just a, a tiny gesture look of the eye you know or whatever like we can understand what's going on we can almost humans have the ability to almost have a conversation with somebody without ever speaking a single word over the in the in the course of a single moment you know and so this is a mutual mind state and uh and one of his theses is that we can develop a mutual mind state with God to where no longer are we just thinking about God, which is the primary form of discipleship that we've seen in the West, but rather thinking with God, where we're actually thinking God's thoughts because we've developed this attachment to him and this ability to share this mutual mind state with him. And I don't know, I just think it's all fascinating. I think it's a territory that needs to be explored further. And I, yeah, I'm just, I'm so there. I'm so in this uh, this conversation, wanting to know more about it and mm -hmm. it, it just expecting a lot of opportunity for this to transform how we do ministry, how we help people grow mm -hmm. and such. Just invite Neo to see the matrix. Exactly. That's right. Because I, well, let's, here's a good quote to end on for Jesus. Like if you want to talk about biblical, what did Jesus think about discipleship? to disciple someone was to teach that person how to live their life in the kingdom of God. Mm. And like we said before, the kingdom of God is wherever God is in action. And so that's happening all the time and you can enter it like with your body and your brain and your hearts and your mm. will and all those things um, much more often than we do. And discipleship isn't teaching people about God. It's teaching people how to live into the kingdom of God right here. It's good. So, well, we'll finish the book and hopefully get into some more practical stuff next time. So be sure to tune in and I'll just remind you again, be sure to fill out the uh, the survey. Could we beg them a little bit here at the end? Please, 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 <laughs> pretty, pretty, please, pretty, please, please fill out the listener survey. It would mean so much to us Look, to get would, to hear from you. It would validate us <laughs> in a way that's probably more than it should. We might need to spend a little time attaching to Jesus because maybe we find too much consolation in the fact that you fill out that form but i'm just trying to tell you 
that it would mean a lot. It would like it would mean so <laughs> much to us. Please, please, please. We are so curious to hear from you, to hear what you've enjoyed about this podcast over the years, and how we can make it better. Um, your ideas are probably better than ours about yeah. what to do with this. We generally could use those ideas. Like we're trying to figure <laughs> out what to do next with the podcast, and so please tell us what you'd like to hear. Please. All right. Have we groveled enough? Yes. I hope so. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time.